Let's pray. Father, I pray that you give us a, a bit of respite, just spiritually, emotionally, mentally. In these next several minutes together, Father, as we just um, take pause, we want to hear from you. We want, we want to commune with you. We want to meet with you. And, and Lord, do so through your word, through the fellowship with our brothers and sisters in this room. In just a little while, as we remember our Savior and our King Jesus through bread and cup. Lord, I pray as I say these things that, Lord, you enable us to shut out the distractions and the concerns, the stresses and the worries, the stuff that might intrude on hearing and engaging with, communing with you today. Father, we need this. We so need to be renewed and restored. At the very least, just a recalibration of our thinking and our emotions, a rebuilding of our faith this week, Lord, as we think about you, as we remember Jesus. Uh, so, Father, I pray you enable that today. And, Father, I, I pray that for the person that's sitting in this room this morning or that might hear this message, for that person for whom Jesus is an idea, a true idea, a concept, a bit of history, maybe even for that person for whom there's some affection for Jesus, but there is no relationship with the true and living God to know and to walk with, to enjoy and to trust in. Father, I pray that today would be the beginning of new life for them, a rebirth, a new beginning. They would know the one true God and Jesus whom you have sent and have fellowship with you to be reconciled to you through the work of Christ who came and lived perfectly and loved absolutely, died sacrificially, rose bodily, ascended visibly, and will return mightily, absolutely in triumph for his own. Father, may that not just be an idea for us, but that, may that be our guiding daily, even constant reality reminder of Christ. So Lord, save some today. Renew some today. Restore some today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There were probably precious few times from my middle school, high school days and up that I didn't leave my house and hear my mom say these same words to me. Whether it was heading off to school in the morning or maybe hanging out with my friends in the afternoon, maybe going on a date on the weekend or later on heading back to school, back to college on a Sunday afternoon. My mom would say these same words to me so many times. It was just etched in my memory. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. You know, that was always a, a grounding sort of thing for me. That when temptations to be something else or something different would intrude, those words would echo. When I would um, be drawn into being something that I know is not how I was raised or more importantly what God required of me those things would resonate in my mind just something that just grounds spiritually and in this text today there's something far greater than that that God offers to us to just ground us spiritually 
There's something about what Paul wrote to Timothy that should speak to us on a very personal sort of level. Now, it's clear that Paul was preparing Timothy, or God was using Paul to prepare Timothy for a life of ministry. I mean, this much we know. We know it biblically, and we know it historically. A church that God had used Paul and others to plant in a difficult outpost city called Ephesus, a city that was just replete with pagan worship, multiculturalism, and at best, syncretism, just the blending of so many really inherently incongruent ideas and concepts and religions. And in this place where God was not glorified and the name of the Savior King was not known, a church began to emerge. And this youngish man named Timothy would be its leader primarily. And Paul is preparing Timothy, or the Holy Spirit was using Paul to prepare Timothy, both with Paul's own life experiences, an example, and with the inspired words that he would give him that we have as Scripture, that this was going to be tough. We make no mistake about it. This is going to be tough. Though you are serving the Lord God Almighty, though you are walking in the very paths that He has laid out for you, though you are doing His will obediently, expect this to be really difficult. It challenges one of those nonsensical Christian cliches that we've probably all heard at some point. The safest place to be is at the center of God's will. Not if you're persecuted, not if you're facing martyrdom, not if you're opposed from every side. It's not safety that He calls us to. It's obedience, but obedience to a great end. Not just obedience as sacrifice, but obedience that might cost you sacrifice, but that will ultimately result in a reward beyond comprehension. So he's worth it. But he's reminding Timothy, Timothy, this ministry that, it, that God has called you to, it's going to challenge you beyond yourself. It's going to exceed your natural abilities. It's going to go way beyond the skill sets that you possess and the training that you've received. You're going to have to be utterly dependent on the God who has called you and gifted you. You're going to have to do these things in the company of other believers. God never intended this to be a solo act. He never called people to just faith in general, but to faith in particular in Him and in the fellowship of His church. And though you and I, most of us in this room, are not pastors or elders or church planters, or missionaries on a foreign field. Those principles still apply. Expect the challenges here. And so he gives Timothy this statement. Remember Jesus. Two simple words. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Remember Jesus. Now think of the context of the passage that we've looked at so far, and this will make so much more sense to us. You remember the three metaphors or analogies, the motifs that he's given Timothy already? These give us some indication as to the sort of challenges he's going to face and why this statement, so simple as it may seem, is so profound, so necessary. So think about this just for a moment. He said at the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 1, he said, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Again, he's reminding him of his relationship to, to Paul. He's a spiritual offspring of Paul, but he's also young. 
and the source of his strength, which is not internal, it's external to him. It's an alien strength, it's God's strength, it's grace. He said, be strengthened in the grace that's Christ Jesus, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Let's perpetuate the good news of the gospel. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, when life is a fight, when you feel like you're in a battle, that's what life feels like, to be faithful to Christ, to do what God wants you to do. When you've got opponents both within and without, when people you think ought to be on your side or not, when people who you think ought to be in the fight with you or not, when people are taking shots at you and you're receiving enemy fire and you're receiving the challenge of this foreign field, these spiritual outsiders that are not your enemy but who have an enemy behind them that is your enemy, when the world is a fight that requires devotion and focus, remember Jesus. When it gets hard and you feel like you're a soldier in the trenches out there, Remember Jesus. When life is an endurance race and you're tired and you're weary of the struggle or you're welching on your commitments and you just don't feel like doing it today, you don't feel like getting up and facing it today, you don't feel like opening up that book which is a book of life for you today, when praying is superficial at best or you just are not feeling it today, when that struggle, that ongoing struggle that requires dedication and integrity is in front of you. I mean, when you're just in it, when you're not running downhill, but you're pushing and slogging uphill, what do you do? Remember Jesus. When it gets hard and you can't see the finish line yet, or you're running by yourself, or the conditions are poor, remember Jesus. Like a farmer, that challenging, that daily grind, you just got to get up and do it today, and you may see no results today, or you may see discouragement today. And when it's not going your way today, and it doesn't rain, or maybe it rains too much, when everything's going against you, or everything's going for you, you still are faithful. In that challenging daily grind that requires diligence and consistency, that routine of life, He didn't call you to fun. He called you to faithfulness. Remember Jesus. When you're not sure of what you're doing makes any difference, when you're not sure that the seeds you're sowing are ever going to grow or develop into anything, when you're not sure you matter at all, you remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Now because this word is written in a present, active voice, he's saying not just once in a while, but the constant act of faithfulness is to remember Jesus. And what about you? What about me? In those moments when I think no one sees or no one cares, remember Jesus. When it seems to be too hard and I just want to throw in the towel, remember Jesus. When I'm tired of the fight and I just want to retire and I just want to take my leave and find my ease, remember Jesus. And he tells Timothy and through Timothy and through his holy word, he tells us, what specifically should we remember? Because this is not just something ethereal. Hey, just think about Jesus. Think positive thoughts. So I want you to remember this about Jesus. This Jesus that you serve, this Jesus that you represent, this Jesus whose good news that you tell, remember these things about Jesus. He says, first, I want you to remember the proof of Jesus. 
Remember the absolute, definitive, inarguable, world-altering, life-changing, eternity-granting proof of Jesus, His resurrection. He says, I want you to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Remember that Jesus is exactly who we claim to be. Those claims of divinity, of Godhood. When Jesus says, I am greater than Abraham. When Jesus says, you've seen me, so you've seen the Father. This Jesus is divine. And when he tells Jesus to remember the resurrection, he's not just telling Jesus, hey, remember that monumental day that pinnacle day in our faith when Jesus, who was dead, was made alive, it's not just looking back and remembering the resurrection. It's remembering that at this moment, this Jesus that you serve is a living Jesus. He is the living King. When Paul told Timothy, remember Jesus, he's saying, we don't serve a martyred Messiah. We don't serve a great teacher, God rest his soul. We don't serve this revolutionary leader whose principles now we should try to live by and whose life we should now carry on as if he were still among us. He says, remember the living Jesus. I think about this in one of those passages of Scripture that sometimes when we're reading through the Bible for ourselves, we speed through because it looks just like perfunctory, introductory material before the good stuff starts. Romans chapter 1. Listen to how Paul introduces himself. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised before and through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations." including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. When Paul introduced himself, he did not introduce himself as a servant of the once and former Jesus. But Jesus, the raised, the risen, the reigning King, Jesus, the living King. He said, Timothy, remember Jesus, the raised King, the risen King. He is alive. He said, remember not only the proof that Jesus is who he said he was, but remember the promise that Jesus fulfilled. It's not just Jesus risen from the dead. It's Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Now, every single Jewish person in the first century would know exactly what that statement in those four words means, the offspring of David. In fact, I'm going to talk about this more in depth tonight the son of David. What does it mean for Jesus to be the son of David? But at the very least, it's meaning that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the one. He is not a one. When you think about Jesus, he was not a messianic figure. There have been many messianic figures throughout history. Those who have claimed to be divine, those who claim to have a special relationship with God, those who made an impact, those who had a powerful message, those who garnered a following he is the one he's the one that God promised from the beginning and he gave us the specific details of who he would be so they would identify him correctly this is Jesus he's the promised one of God he is the Messiah whenever we see Christ for those of you who are new to all of this Jesus Christ that was not his last name and I don't mean to be sarcastic here that was his messianic title Jesus the Christ Christ 
Or when you see Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, the one who fulfilled all the promises that we see throughout the Old Testament and into the New. Consider Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Paul told Timothy, he said, Timothy, remember Jesus who is raised, but he is not simply raised. It is not simply that he died and now lives again. It is that now he is reigning over all things. So, Timothy, when you feel like the opposition is too strong for you to overcome, I mean, when you feel like you're losing, when you're looking around and you're saying, more people are going into the temple of Diana than are coming into the house of the true and living God. More people are rejecting the truth than are believing it. We're losing this battle. Everything is collapsing and crumbling all around us. The world's getting worse and worse and worse. Remember Jesus. He lives and He reigns. Timothy, your perspective does not tell the whole story of the reigning King, and remember this proclamation that I've given you, the one that we've repeated over and over, the one that is your message, the one that is your message for the rest of your life, the one that is your message to convey to another group of messengers who will make it their message, and so on and so on. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now, Paul was not saying, I've got a different gospel or a unique gospel or a personal gospel. He's saying, Timothy, I want you to remember the heart of what you have heard me say, what we have preached in place after place after place when you've been beside me, what we declare in this place. What do we mean by gospel? Now, for time's sake, I wish I could spend a little more time really developing this, so you just have to listen hard and fast. Paul wasn't, Tim, wasn't telling Timothy, Timothy, you remember the plan of salvation that I gave you? Say these things, repeat this prayer, become a Christian. He says, I want you to remember the storyline that is the storyline of all of Scripture. The story of God from creation all the way to consummation. I want you to remember this great storyline that induces, that enables salvation. The storyline of God's love for a fallen, sinful, rebellious people that would cause Him to send His Son as a rescuing, redeeming Savior who would necessarily be born out of the normal means of birth, outside of the means of the sinful line of Adam. That would be the offspring of the very Spirit of God in His birth. Conceived by the Spirit would be Jesus. Now let me correct. Mary conceived by the Spirit. Jesus pre-existent, always one with the Father and the Spirit. And God would send His perfect, redeeming Son into the world for the purpose of achieving His own demand, His righteous demand of perfection. He would live perfectly so that He could die sacrificially. He would be raised physically He would ascend visibly so that no one could deny the reality of Him with the promise that He would return. But the return is not the end. It's that He would bring about the fulfillment of His kingdom and every knee would bow. In every place, in every nation, every tribe, in every tongue, the culmination of the story of God. 
Paul's gospel was a gospel of the kingdom. This is King Jesus. And he's coming back to establish his throne forever and forever and ever. From the garden to the city of God. From the earth where there would be a temple till the time when Jesus himself would be the temple. The story that marched from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David to Jesus. The spread of this good news, he said, all the way to the consummation till the entire earth bows before him. This is my gospel. So he tells Timothy, remember this. And that's why Paul said these words. I'm bound. I'm treated like a criminal. But this message, this proclamation, this cannot be bound. This cannot be bound. How would it even be conceivably possible that the message of the coming king, the king over all things, the one at whose feet every knee will bow, how would it be possible, even conceivable, to chain that message? He says it cannot. You can imprison and kill the messenger, and many messengers would be imprisoned and killed from Stephen's time, the first martyr, through Paul to Peter, and so many after. But the message, the truth, the proclamation, the announcement that Jesus is king, this Jesus, this King Jesus who came is coming again. He'll rule and reign. This proclamation is boundless. It's unboundable. It cannot be chained. And he says of this message, listen to his words. He says, therefore, because of this message of the great king, we'll go out regardless of what people do to me or people like me. Therefore, he said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying this gospel, this message, this proclamation that induces salvation, that people upon hearing it will say, God, forgive me a sinner. Forgive me for rebelling against you. God, save me. God, include me in your kingdom. This salvation-inducing proclamation he says it's necessary for the salvation of the elect from the very beginning all the way to the end. And in this we see Paul addressing that perceived tension that we have regarding the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And we see this collision, as it were, of three different activities regarding salvation. For Paul, the messenger. For Timothy, a messenger. For every future believer, a messenger. He says, it's worth it. He says, this is why I will suffer as I do. I will suffer with this. I will endure everything for the sake of the elect for this gospel message. If I have to die to go to the ends of the earth to share this message, if I have to be beaten and imprisoned to share this life-changing proclamation, this salvation-inducing message, I will do it. That's my responsibility. And their sake, that they may obtain it, not that they might work for it, not that they might labor so that they are granted it, but so that in hearing it, they would receive it and that they would cling to it for the rest of their life and being taught it consistently throughout their life and being warned against forsaking it, abandoning it, rejecting it, apostatizing from it. They might hold on to the end of it and so doing, by persevering, by enduring, they are saved ultimately. It's worth it. It's their responsibility to hear and to respond, knowing that God, beyond our scope of understanding, 
has, according to Ephesians 1.4, chosen for himself a people before the foundations of the earth. He says, this gospel message is necessary. I will endure everything for their sake. When Paul says, the elect, who is he talking about? He's talking about every single person who, upon hearing this proclamation of the good news, responds to it by faith and is transformed by it and who verifies, validates that they are truly professors of faith. They truly have the Spirit of God in them because they persevere to the end, demonstrating they are truly saved. He says, this is worth my life to me. This is worth everything to me. This is the gospel. And when he says obtaining it, again, I want to reiterate this point for a moment. There's nothing in that that speaks to human effort that grants us salvation. Salvation is holy of the Lord, completely by grace. For by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. We know this from Ephesians chapter 2. But a misunderstood, often ignored component of the gospel message is both the promise of God that those whom he calls, he'll also ultimately glorify, that those whom he chooses, he'll bring to ultimate fulfillment and culmination in salvation, and all the processes in between of that sanctification, but the requirement that we persevere. And how does God persevere? It's God who's sovereign in both the means and the ends, the end that we would make it all the way to the end and finish well, like Paul said to Timothy. And by what means do we make it? Through so many warnings that we would not turn, that we would not abandon, that we would not give up. The Canons of Dort, in Article 14, in the early days of the Reformation, and the Reformation was taking form, and there was debate and dissension about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and the exchange between Jacob Arminius and John Calvin and so many different believers on the doctrine of salvation. The issue of perseverance came to the forefront. In Article 14, the Canons of Dort state this, As it has pleased God by the preaching of the gospel to begin this work of grace in us, so he preserves, continues, and perfects it by hearing, by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditation thereon, and by the exhortations, threatenings, and promises thereof, and by the use of the sacrament, speaking of baptism and Lord's Supper. By these things, God holds us, and we hold him to the end. And so Paul is telling Timothy, preach this gospel, keep preaching it as a means that they might enter in and be sanctified by and endure till the end so that they're glorified in their salvation, that they might obtain it all, the full fruit of their salvation. And then Paul says these words, verse 11. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. The saying is trustworthy. Five different times In Paul's writings, he uses that phrase. This is a trustworthy saying. The saying is trustworthy. What does he mean by that? Well, in the early church, apparently, there were these statements that were somewhat akin to what we might call a creedal statement. In other words, repeated often among bodies of believers in churches in different places. Statements that they would know and repeat, that they would know like a very familiar hymn or a statement of faith, an affirmation that they would say to one another. So when Paul said, this is a trustworthy saying, he's repeating something that they knew. He's going to bring it to bear on this overall statement, this passage. Verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. 
If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's talk about this trustworthy saying for a moment. Scriptures are telling us that our death to self and our death to safety is actually the means to real life. Timothy, remember, this is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we'll live with him. Dying with him may mean dying for him, because of him. It may mean martyrdom. It may mean suffering. It may mean persecution. But it also means simply dying to myself, to my own desires. We've been crucified with Christ, therefore we no longer live. But the life we do live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, Paul told the Galatians. Jesus said to those who would follow him, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He has to take up his cross daily to follow me. That means no longer are you self-determinant, self-governing. No longer are you autonomous. No longer do you get to live for what you want to live for. I become your king. Or in the analogy of 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm your commander. And you're the soldier in my army. And so you're denying yourself to what does God want from me? What does God expect from me? The highest aim in your life is to please Him, not for you to find what pleases you, to do whatever you want. It's to do what God wants. And so he says you deny yourself, but also the denial of safety. There's no guarantee in Timothy's calling that he wouldn't die for this calling. In fact, vividly in front of him was the real possibility that he would, in fact, die for this calling. Just as the imprisoned Paul was about to. It's to give up self and safety, but you find when you do, the door's been opened to real life, something bigger and something better. What does that mean for me and you? I mean, if you and I could give up the ease and our commitment to it, if we could reprioritize so that pleasure or comfort or ease or security are not our highest aims, but our driving question is, God, in this moment, in this time, in this place, what do you want from me? How do I most faithfully follow Jesus now? No conditions. Our death to self and safety is a means to real life. He's also telling him in the next, if we endure, we'll reign with him. Our perseverance now ensures the enjoyment of victory later. That was the analogy of the, of the competing athlete who's running to win the prize. Listen, you persevere now. You run the race now. You pay the price now with the promise of victory later. If we endure, we will reign with him. I know some of us have never thought through the if statements. They seem contradictory to the faith of our childhood when we were told, once saved, always saved, right? And yet we've taken from that rather juvenile or, or, or childlike expression of faith to mean things that it doesn't mean, that how I live doesn't matter that there are no if statements, that there are no challenges to faithfulness. And again, I believe those, according to the Scriptures, who truly are His will persevere to the end, He perseveres us through these multiple warnings. Don't quit. Don't turn away from. Don't deny Him. You see, a failure to hold fast to the faith is fatal. There's no comfort given to those in the Scriptures who say, I'm not a believer anymore. When we read about those who deconstructed, we read about the faith of those people who said, I used to be this and now I'm this. 
Where can we go in the scriptures and say, ah, oh, but you're okay. It doesn't matter. I know you say you don't believe that stuff anymore, and you deny God, and you deny the Jesus that died for you. I know that you deny all those things, and now you're openly opposed to those. But once saved, always saved. We don't find that comfort in scripture. In fact, we find the warning opposite, to never turn away, never to let go of, never to deny. Because if we deny him before men, he will deny us before the Father, Jesus said. Again, it may be a challenging philosophical conundrum for us to know that he will persevere us if we're truly his but we must also persevere and the us persevering is a mark that we are truly his because a failure to hold fast to the faith is fatal but god's immutability is our unshakable hope his response that if we deny him he'll also deny us if we're faithless when we struggle when our grip is weak when we're having a difficult time, when we're falling away, when we're doing what the patriarchs did in the Old Testament, for instance, when we're like Abraham, who loses faith and disobeys God and lies about his wife Sarah, or we're like Jacob, or we're like Isaac, or we're like any other follower in any other phase of history who is imperfect in their following. It's good for us to know that he remains faithful for he is immutable. He cannot change. He can never be faithless for he is ever faithful. Everything that God does is in perfect concert with everything that God is. And because who he is will never change, what he does will never change. He'll always be perfect in his person, perfect in, an action, in his actions. That's what scriptures say, as for God, his way is perfect because he is perfect. All that he does is good. His immutability is our unshakable hope. Ultimately, our assurance as a Christian, as a body of Christians, is his faithfulness, not ours. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad at your weakest and worst moments? Aren't you glad at those times and places where you did not live as a faithful follower of Christ, where by your words or by your actions, you indicated something less than what it meant to be a child of the Most High. That He is forever faithful to us. That when you lay your head on your pillow tonight, you can wake up with confidence that you are still His because He is faithful. He is forever faithful to us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. But when you rest your head on the pillow of God's faithfulness, Remember that God's faithfulness to himself, his absolute immutability, inability to change. Remember that God being faithful to God, being faithful to who he is, what he does, consistent in all that he says. Remember that that applies not only to his promises, but also to his threats. God will never deny himself. There will never be a time where someone will stand before God and God will say, you know, I didn't really mean that. I wasn't, I mean, I didn't mean for you to take that seriously. You know, when I said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. That was just so you wouldn't screw up worse. I was just trying to keep you in check. He will be faithful to every warning he's ever declared, every promise he's ever committed himself to. He's going to be faithful. That is God's faithfulness to us. So he tells Timothy this. Timothy. When this gets real, and it, and it will, and it is, when it's a fight, when it's a drudgery, when it's an unrewarding task, 
Just remember Jesus. But not in some sentimental way. Not in that, remember, poor Jesus up there on the cross, bloody and beaten and suffering for you. Not in the sense that says, remember how bad they treated Jesus. Remember all that he went through? That ought to guilt you into going through some things for him. Remember, he, he died for you, so live for him now. Not that kind of remembering. Though that is true, he did suffer and die for us. And that should evoke a response from us. But he said, I want you to remember Jesus, not Jesus on the cross. I want you to remember Jesus who walked out of the tomb. I want you to remember the Jesus that went up into the clouds. I want you to remember Jesus of whom the angel said, as you saw him go, you will see him return. I want you to remember Jesus, the fulfillment of the covenant of God, the Messiah of the household of David, who will rule and reign forever and all the nations will bow. I want you to remember that Jesus when you're struggling, when it's hard. And I want you to remember this faithful saying, dying to self and to safety, dying period, if it's for the cause of Christ, will be worth it because we will live and rule with Him. I want you to remember that enduring, though it's costly and painful, it's worth it because you will reign with Him. I want you to remember the cost of apostatizing. I want you to remind people there's not hope given to those who deny Him, who abandon Him. But I want you to remember in all of that, you're held in the grip of the Almighty, and He is faithful. He will never deny Himself. He has covenanted with you for your very salvation. He has pledged to you your salvation from beginning to consummation to the very end. By the blood and body of His Son, you are His. Remember, He is faithful. So whatever you're going through, and whatever's coming your way next, you remember Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in our hearts we would worship as we remember. That we would be grounded again in proper and right understanding of our King. Good and sound Christology as we remember Jesus. Father, some of us have a sentimental view. And some of us are motivated by or motivate others or try to self-motivate just, just by guilt. Father, we've been guilty of doing that even, I suspect, sometimes through our observations of your table, table of remembrance. I remember how Jesus suffered, so now go live for him. Father, I pray that instead today we'd be motivated by a gospel of victory, a kingdom gospel. That yours is the victory. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we are not simply waiting for the enemy to roll over us. We are not simply waiting to be destroyed by a cultural tide of godlessness. We are, are not subject to the whims of this world. And we are not weaker than our enemy. But we serve the risen king, the living king, the soon and coming king. We are commissioned by him. We are empowered by your spirit, O oh Father. We have been promised by him who is faithful that all authority on heaven and earth 
has been given to him. And we exercise and work in that divine authority to proclaim this gospel. Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly, died sacrificially, rose bodily, ascended visibly, and will return the same, and will rule and reign forever. Father, that is our gospel, and I pray that we would be bold. Father, I pray for the faithfulness of our people in this room. Lord, that we would never turn away from, we would never let go of, we would never deny the one who saved us. Father, I believe you persevere us. I believe one of the means of your perseverance is that we are warned not to turn away, not to deny, not to apostatize. But Father, my prayer is that as your people here, known as Calvary, that we would labor together, we would love one another well, we would encourage and admonish, we would challenge and exhort, we would reach down when one has fallen, and we would celebrate when one is up, all for the sake of your glory, your name, and that we might all finish well together. So Lord, now as we, as a people, bought by you, saved by you, defined by you, Lord, as your people, as we gather together, to remember Jesus together. Lord, I pray that if there are sins that need to be confessed that would hinder fellowship with you, that would bring about your judgment or correction, your discipline, Father, I pray that we would repent of those sins right now. Lord, I pray that we would not take part in, in partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Lord, we would recognize that we are remembering Christ. We remember the purpose of his death was for the cost of our sin. And Father, if we entertain sin today lightly, loosely, and we do not understand the purpose of our Savior's death. That as we take the bread and the cup, we are declaring your kingdom till you come. Father, I pray that we would not do that in an inconsistent or an incongruent way because we remain in sin and yet we say you're king. Father, we know who we are. We know whose we are. Um, so Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would make us ready today. Convict us of sin. Lead us to genuine repentance. Not the superficial profession of repentance, but genuine repentance. And in restoration, celebrate today with faith and joy. And Lord, if there's an unbeliever in this room, where I pray that they would see and begin to understand in their mind, their hearts, this message of the good news. And Father, that they would trust in Jesus. They would say, save me, a sinner. Give me new life. Rescue me. Make me part of your eternal family. Lord, I want to know you, serve you, love you, enjoy you forever. Father, speak to their hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.